0: Hello, listeners. This is a quick reminder to you to fill out our audience survey, please. We'd love to find out more about the content that you love and hear your feedback on the show. So just click the link in the episode description or go to thisstudyshows.com. Thanks.
1: This is Dan George.
0: And this is Marianne O'Hotter. Welcome to This Study Shows,
1: a podcast from Wiley all about how you can transform the way you communicate your
0: research. Now, this week is a little bit different. There's no theme. Anything goes. Mm. Instead, we're going to speak to a load of different science communicators and researchers and hear their answer to this question, which is... If you could change one thing about science communication, what would it be? before we speak to all our uh, guest experts, have you had any ideas of your own on this, Dan? Yes, I have. I Mm -hmm. think
1: we should find real incentives for researchers to communicate their science.
0: Ooh, incentives. What like?
1: Well, like, sort of like in promotion. So for that, um, you sort of have to build up a score for your publication. So, you know, Mm -hmm. how many high impact um, papers you've written in, in good journals. You could do the same and build up a score for the number of public outreach events you've had. So your efforts in public outreach could be um,
0: part of the reward um, in your in your promotion. Aha. Uh-huh. So putting science communication on a par with being published in your top-end journal. Yeah. So if you know, if you took like a
1: high-end journal in in my area then the impact factor is could be quite high. You might then have to do, let's say, 10 public outreach events in order to have like one of those journals. So 10 events would be valued
0: in the same way as one of those papers in the journals. Does that make sense? Ooh, it does. That sounds quite radical, though. Mm. That would really put the cat amongst the academic pigeons, it would, would it not?
1: Yeah, yeah. But I think it really would sort of make... Many researchers sort of go, oh, OK, so there is something else that I can do here and, and put more value onto that science communication, which we know is valuable, right? But, but not all researchers yeah. take the time to do it.
0: Do you think that people would push back on that and say, hang on a minute, I haven't even got time to keep up with the the peer-reviewed journals. I haven't got time to keep up with um, the work that's being done in other institutes on my specific field at my level of specialism. Mm. I don't have time to, you know, do some public lectures or do a, you know, kid's school program.
1: Yeah, maybe. But writing a journal takes a long time or paper, sorry, writing a paper for a journal takes a really long time. And in that time, instead of doing that or, you know, every now and again, you don't do that. You do the going to school or give a public lecture in the pub,
0: the local pub, Uh, you know, whatever (laughs) it is. I love that. It's so difficult, isn't it? Because good SCICOM always seems self-selecting. The people who are passionate about it tend to be the people who are good at it because they mm. practice, they they hone their skills, they think about what message, what story they want to share, and they have a desire to extend the scope of science beyond the the ivory towers or the the labs. Mm. And if institutions took that on board and really embedded it into the kind of the fabric of how they operate, that would actually change who was interested and therefore recruited in. It would change the kind of talent that would be drawn to science in the first place, probably for the better, I reckon. Definitely. Like I've I've had way more PhD students
1: have said to me, I wanted to do a PhD with you because I heard you give a, give a public lecture or you came to this sort of youth conference I was at or, you know, something like that. I don't think I've ever had a PhD student come to me and said, I read one of your papers in a journal and I really wanted to come and do a PhD with you. I'm sure they read your papers anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Make them read my papers when they, they join.
0: Exactly. <laughs> It looks like our first guest is here. Joining us from Nova Scotia, Canada, it's geoscientist, Matt Hall. Hello, Matt. Hello. Okay, so if you could change one thing in the world of SciComm, what would it be?
2: I think the the top thing for me would be banishing the rainbow color map forever.
0: Mm. Okay, for those of us who don't live in the world of data visualization and geoscience, just give us a 101 on the rainbow color map and why it's wrong
2: yeah it's that it's that color map that you often see um in scientific publications in what they call a pseudo color image so a person's taken a a data set like maybe a topographic map or uh, a map of temperature and then uh in order to display it in something other than just a sort of grayscale they'll map colors onto it and it's usually the rainbow so it basically goes you know red orange yellow green blue and so on and um and it's so familiar that you probably almost haven't noticed it because it's everywhere in the literature. Mm. Um, and the problem with it is that um, it's it's a sort of arbitrary distortion of the data. Um, also, people don't um, intuitively associate an order to the rainbow, although we're familiar with rainbows, you don't necessarily know that orange is less or more than green, say. Right. Um, and, right. and perhaps worst of all, uh, it's it's terrible for colourblind people. They just can't interpret maps like that. So it's not very accessible.
1: Oh mm. well, there you go. Oh, you've convinced me definitely. <laughs> why, you know, especially in in this sort of era where where we are really trying to be more accessible and more inclusive, why do people still use this? Do you think?
2: Yeah, I, you know, it's it's a bit of a
0: mystery. I know why. Um, I know why. Yeah, why? It's because it why? looks nice. Yeah. I Come on, guys! Like, <laughs> oh, you yeah, see yeah, all these scientists—they're like yeah. going for a clever answer. I'm like, uh, it's because it looks pretty.
2: Yeah, it does, it, and it's familiar. <laughs> and I've actually seen even recent examples of, uh, or hearing about PI, so um, principal investigators, sort of almost mandating it in their lab, or editors um, or peer reviewers pushing back and saying, "No, no, we want to see that map with a with a you know standard or spectrum or rainbow color bar."
3: Wow. Um,
2: so there's a sort of uh, tradition of it, I, I guess. But I think t- on the sort of technical note, maybe one of the things that people like about it is that it goes through a lot of colors. So it, 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 it highlights very small changes in the data. And I, I think people are attracted to that. But actually, that's one of the problems with it, um, yeah. because those changes can be sort of arbitrary and, or noisy, right? So, uh, yeah. Okay. Interesting.
0: So, if you ban it, what are you going to have instead?
2: <laughs> okay. So, yeah, that's a great question. Because um, uh, one of the interesting things about it, and, and again, another reason for its prevalence, I think, is that it, it was the default color map in a lot of scientific visualization programs and, and libraries. Um, and uh, it was, even though this research about it being bad has been around for ages, it was only fairly recently, like I think in 2015 or 16, MATLAB changed its default. And then Matplotlib, the Python uh, visualization tool, uh, changed its default a couple of years later. And they've changed to what are called perceptually linear color maps. So these are color maps that don't distort the data. The lightness value um, of the color map, so that it's apparent sort of uh, brightness, if you like, is uh, linear. So um, Mm. a colorblind person doesn't need to interpret colors because the brightness sort of takes care of the data range if you like there's also a a popular one from a scientist called fabio crameri who's done a lot of work on this just published a paper in nature communications in october about it um so they are out there just look for perceptually linear color maps that's that's the key words
0: there you go folks not as
1: catchy is it (laughs) not. it needs needs a catchier name we we need to work on the branding (laughs) don't we (laughs) well you heard it here first matt hall the geoscientist wants to ban rainbow color maps everyone Thank you so much for joining us, Matt. Right, Thank you, Matt. Bye.
2: Bye.
0: Our next caller is Paige Jarrow from Louisiana State University. She's also VP of Science Communication at Lifeomic, which is a health software company in the US, where she co-founded the science art platform Lifeology. Welcome, Paige. Yeah, thanks for having me. I reckon you're going to have a good answer for us on this question. If you could change one thing, what would you change about SciComm?
3: If I could change one thing, I would love for more scientists to work with creatives, including artists. Mm. Um, So I think all scientists and science communicators should receive some training or be educated in the value and the process too of working with professional creatives, including artists. You know, there's a lot of scientists that want to work with artists to create better science communication products, but they really don't know where to start. (laughs) So that's what we're trying to do here at Lifeology is help them along that process and also educate them in best ways to go about collaboration.
1: Ah, nice. Is this the the sort of STEM versus STEAM debate, you know, science, technology, engineering, and maths versus all of those things plus
3: art? I, I think to some extent, yes, that art should be a part of our education. But I think, too, that a lot of scientists have been... Um, encouraged to incorporate art and like creative writing and that kind of thing into their sciences and into their science communication. But the problem I see is that it's been a lot of, they've been pushed to do it like DIY to create their own (laughs) graphics, to create their own data visualizations, (laughs) to, you know, to learn how to write better, which is awesome. But there's, you know, people that their careers that they're, you know, training for, years and years and years and years has been how to tell good stories and how to create art that really touches people's hearts and minds. So I think more scientists working with those professional creatives is really important as a, as opposed to doing all of that themselves.
0: Mm. For our listeners who haven't yet seen the light, tell us what is the value of scientists collaborating with creatives?
3: Yeah, I think part of it is is coming out of the other side of this collaboration process with Amazing science communication products or even changes in how we see our science, new research questions that we can pursue, you know, um, that innovate our science. So, you know, there's the the products that make our science and science communication better. Um, but I think that per the process of collaborating with someone who sees things very differently than you is immense in terms of like changing your perspective, helping you become a better science communicator, um, and innovating your science, I think for me, that process is always incredible like I've worked with you know dozens of artists now, and every time I'm just amazed and I learned something new just because they see it so differently than I do yeah. the science and the the what I've written or what I'm trying to communicate
1: yeah what what stops more of us doing it then do you think do you think funding's an issue so I, I could imagine you know some of the research bodies that that I get um, my funding from would really buy into, you know, when I'm writing a grant, writing an artist into it. But I could imagine, you know, some loving it and some really, really not.
3: <laughs> yeah, funding is definitely an issue, Um, 100%. You know, and that's one of the major barriers when I talk to scientists who, you know, they want to work with artists, but their barrier is funding. But I think that there is funding there that we're not that we don't think about until kind of the research is over, Mm. right? So it's like allocating funding and and having that in mind when you apply for your grant to put it in. Um, Asking your department heads, like using outreach funding to do, to work with creatives. I think just awareness that you can do that Mm. and thinking about it early is probably a barrier to funding as opposed to just like there's no funding available for it.
1: Are there lots of people doing this already then, Paige? I wouldn't know where to start. You know, if I was writing a grant and I'm, and I, you know, thinking, right, I really want to, an artist to be part of this, what would I do? Like Google? I don't know. How how would I find one? Yeah,
3: <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah. Um, so there's great places. I mean, even just Googling, you'll probably quickly find like hashtag sci art, where a lot of artists are, um, science artists mm. are posting on uh, Twitter, that they're kind of posting their work out there. Um, there's also a growing number of networks where directories online where you can go and find an artist, like art the science sci art initiative, Lifeology. We're growing a member directory um, of over eight hundred people who are mostly like artists around the world, and so the first challenge is just like finding someone that you you like their style, you might want to work with them that also you can envision their style kind of working for your target audience mm. or your purpose um and then reaching out to them because. A lot of the artists in our community say that like the earlier the scientist reaches out to them, the, be- the more they can help. So I think a great place to start is to sort of reach out and start having those conversations and figuring out what you might do together.
0: Yeah. Exciting times. Uh, thanks
1: so much for sharing your one thing, Paige. Uh, I really do hope we see more science art collaborations in the future. Thank you.
3: Awesome. You're welcome.
0: Okay, so our next big idea is from Alberto Pepe. He works at Wiley, where he oversees the development of open science tools and initiatives. Hello, Alberto. Thanks for joining us.
4: Hello, and thank you for having me.
0: Okay, so if you could change one thing in SciCom, what would it be?
4: Well, no more PDFs. <gasps> <Wow>. uh, <laughs> them- Whoa,
1: controversial, what? Alberto. But I like it.
0: I like it. Why
3: wait, why would hang that on. Be why going? do we
0: like it? What's wrong with a PDF?
4: So uh we publish um over two million papers every year. All of science and research, you know, more than two million papers are published every year. And all of them are essentially PDFs. So they are uh the the very uh format that is used in research communication to uh, exchange scientific ideas is still really a PDF. And what I don't like about a PDF is that it's um, it's a format that was meant for printing mm. uh, papers, for printing ideas, and we don't print very much anymore.
0: But even if we don't print it or print it out, it's not in a kind of hard copy paper journal. Is a PDF not okay? Like you can just read it oh, on screen. No, no, <laughs> Marianne. What am I Marianne. missing, guys? Dan's looking at me with kind of shock yeah. and horror. What have I missed?
1: The 21st century. Yeah, so, that's what you've missed, Marianne. <laughs>
4: <laughs> exactly. So a, a couple of things. I'll say that, yes, PDFs are great for reading. Uh, they're not great for reading on a mobile phone, for example. So they're not very uh, mobile friendly. And you mentioned the 21st century, right? So I've I've been saying for the last (laughs) few years, uh, my mantra is that researchers create 21st century research, but they write it up using 20th century technology Mm. and they publish it in a a 17th century format. So in other words, (laughs) we're still, yeah, if you actually take a paper from the 1600s or the 1700s, so one of the very early published research papers it actually doesn't look too different from what we publish today. Yeah. It's still really a collection of text and images on paper. So um, my main concern and my main um, you know, hope for science is that we really move beyond the PDF and we start including other kinds of research materials that I think would also make research much more uh, reproducible, more transparent, and also machine-readable, right? Mm. If we are uh, really creating so much research, uh, um, it would be great if machines could read that research and maybe we could do very interesting things using artificial intelligence and machine learning to uh, really push research forward.
0: Yeah, I like that. Okay, so you you make a compelling case. Uh, Professor Dan is on board. I still am. You are wily. Alberto, why have you not made this happen already? <laughs>
4: Yeah. Like you're the
0: dude who can make this change, right?
4: <laughs> so that's I that's my job. Um my work is in uh, strategy and innovation and I'm really interested in like innovating the research uh publishing industry and business. Um I believe that one major uh friction point and one roadblock is the fact that uh we have an entire uh, system for producing, publishing, and actually disseminating papers, which is really now, it's been around for many decades. And it's really hard to innovate and change all of the systems to produce a kind of uh, publishing infrastructure that is more web-based. So I guess it's a matter of technology, uh, technology, which is the one thing that has allowed us to communicate and disseminate ideas on the web is also the one thing that is preventing us from uh, moving beyond uh, the PDF format and doing research in a more uh, seamless and in a more modern way. Mm. So I guess that that I'm very interested in working uh, within Wiley and other publishers as well uh, to enable a new way of doing uh, research dissemination.
1: Have you tried it out with with researchers, this radical idea?
3: Yeah,
4: (laughs) actually one of the uh, a startup that I co-founded a few years ago that is now a part of Wiley. It's called Authoria, and it's a preprint server. Uh, it's a vehicle. It's a platform to share early ideas, early research uh, outputs. And uh, we are really focusing on creating a web-first type of research uh, output, research product. The idea of like really bringing research to the web allows for very cool ways to add data visualizations and new interactive ways to display research content. There is actually a a pilot that we did with the International Journal of Quantum Chemistry, where we allowed um, researchers to not only submit a traditional paper, but also uh, their data visualizations that go with the paper. So in other words, they oh, had cool. not just a chemical compound uh, presented as a two-dimensional figure, but they also uh, deposited the interactive visualization for that chemical compound. And so you can actually zoom in and zoom out and uh, interactively rotate the uh, the chemical structure. And it allows for a much more appealing uh, reading experience, right? It's really, mm. I believe that this is really like the future of doing research. It's uh, it's with a more, much more interactive and playful way to displaying and sharing your uh, research data.
0: Thank mm. you for sharing your idea, Alberto. Thank, thank you. you so much.
4: Of course, thank you.
1: Our next idea comes from Crystal Emery. She's a producer, author, and filmmaker who is changing the narrative for people of colour, women, and people with disabilities who work in STEM. Now, we pre-recorded this interview without Marianne. Sorry about that, Marianne. So that's why it's just me in this one.
5: Here's Crystal's answer to our question. You know, one thing I would change in science communication would be to make it more practical. And connected to very tangible understandings, so people understand how it fits into their everyday life and what roles and opportunities there are uh, for for everyone to participate. Because actually, we are all born natural scientists. Yeah, I totally
1: agree with you there, Crystal. So if if that's the thing that that you would change. That sort of means that people aren't making it digestible or practical or connected to tangible activities. Why why do you think it doesn't do it now? Well,
5: I think there's several things. I think that A, scientists work in uh, silos. Um, They work Mm. with small teams of people. And so the nature um, or the culture of science, does not necessarily lend itself um, to practical conversation, and I am going to give you an example that is math, right? So there oh. is like pure and uh, pure theory math, and there is applied math, right? So when you think of a mathematician. Mm. Right? You think of some old Einstein-looking dude with charts all over his wall, right? But the truth is that that pure theory, that is intellectual, academic, that will never come to fruition. But if you look at mathematics through applied, right, that's everything in your life. From your clock, yeah. from the way that airplanes come and go, to traffic stoplights, to transportation, you know, and I think we have to demystify science in that way. Um,
1: if, if people listening want to make their research, make their science more accessible, more digestible, where should they start? Is it, is it with the language that they use?
5: You know what? It is with the language that they use. Um, Look, I'm not saying because at a certain level, you cannot water down uh, when you are explaining your method of evaluation, right? But there is a way within the introduction and the summary that you can make it more user-friendly. The other thing is, Can I say this to all my academic friends? You need to have just a regular person read your drafts, not somebody in your field, but just a regular (laughs) person that doesn't like you um, so that they don't have to be, you know, all gentle and kind. And just let them read it and and ask the questions. And from those questions, you will be able to identify whether you really communicated this to someone who is not an expert in the field.
1: That's great. What a great tip for our listeners. Thank you so much. It's been so lovely to talk to you.
5: Thank you for having me. You guys have a blessed day.
0: Okay, on to our next science communicator. I'd like to introduce Ngozi Erondu. She's an epidemiologist and a senior research fellow at the Universal Health Centre at Chatham House Policy Institute in London. Welcome, Ngozi. Can you tell us what you'd like to change in the world of SCICOM?
6: Thanks, Marianne. I would want there to be a comic that was introduced in the newspaper, but in fact, it would be the newspaper and it would come out weekly. And it would be funny, but it would really be factually based in science, um, specifically science having to do with public health. So it would talk about concepts like vaccines, herd immunity, um, infections, mortality rates, um, screening, eating healthy, all these concepts that, you know, we hear from time to time, but they're not continuously fed to us.
1: Hmm, interesting. Is it is it the fact that it's funny?
6: I think funny funny is a good one because funny is what will make people want to keep reading it, you know? Um, But I, yeah, I think funny is the hook, but I think also, you know, people are just, especially in the age that we're in, I feel like people rather listen to like fake things like cartoons than real people. Um, Maybe it's just easier (laughs) to digest if it's not coming from someone that you could like, you know, peg in a specific political party or that has a different ideology than you. Maybe if it's just from some you know, neutral cartoon, people would accept it.
1: It's yet another example of a really good idea of what to change in Psycom. Why do you think it's not happening now, Ngozi?
6: Well, I think that it's really easy to just talk to people that um, work with you. And, you know, I don't work with many animators. (laughs) I don't work with many people um, who really do anything but science. And so I I just think if you're not kind of around folks uh, that think differently than you, then you you come out with like policy briefs and you come out with like health warnings because that makes sense to us. (laughs) But Mm. yeah, comics probably make less sense to us, but it makes probably more sense to other people.
0: That's exactly it, isn't it? That you kind of have to work out what language you need to speak in in order to have meaningful communication with your, your, you know, the person you want to talk to, the person you want to have a communication with or share your ideas with.
6: Exactly. Yeah, definitely.
1: Do you know of anyone who's tried to do it?
6: Well actually during the Ebola outbreak so um I worked in Guinea during the Ebola outbreak and um there were a, there were a lot of uh like local people who like local artists who um painted science communication messages on the um on the like walls and on on houses um and these they they were all cartoons they were like you know people having conversations and saying you know, like, um, how come you're not shaking my hand? And it's like, oh, you didn't know that Ebola is transmitted this way. And, you know, like that. And I know they did that in Liberia and Sierra Leone as well. And so obviously that's not the same as, you know, a newspaper, but it shows you like, you know, people people stop and look at that. Like, oh, what are, what are these funny characters trying to say? Um, And then it stays with you.
0: I love it. I love your ambition. Thank you so
1: much for sharing your amazing idea. Nice to speak with you as well. Thank you for having me. Our final guest caller is Chelsea Boodoo, who joins us from East Lansing in Michigan. Chelsea is working on a biomedical engineering PhD at Michigan State University, and she's also president of her university's SciComm organization. Chelsea, what's one thing you'd like to change in
7: science communication? There are a lot of things I would like to change, but if I had to pick one, I think it would be for students to actually be acknowledged for the outreach and the science communication that they do. And this can be encouraged by programs, for example, by requiring students to do a science outreach project or even just an outreach focused on their department.
0: And are we talking just graduates or kids who've just come from school? It's their first experience at university and you go, this is part of your the expectations we have for you as you, you know, progress in your science.
7: Well, maybe I'm biased because I did outreach starting from middle school. I loved doing outreach in high school, and I think that really encouraged me to be very involved in my community whenever I got to college. And I've seen programs, even in undergraduate programs, require this. And I think it's something that people become more well-rounded and connected to their what they're focusing on, if it's their thesis, or even just what they want to do in the future, and then getting to know other people that are like-minded and care about what they are studying, I think also helps encourage them as well. So
1: there's some pushback that I remember my PhD students having is, um, they were talking to some other PhD students and saying, you know, we should, we should definitely do more outreach. And um, these other students said to my students, oh, well, it's easy for you because your subject lends itself towards outreach and and my subject doesn't.
7: Do you get that as a as a pushback sometimes? Uh, I mean, I've heard people give that pushback, but there really is something you can do in every single field. For example, I also host the Sci-Files on Impact 89FM. We've interviewed over 100 students about their research in like every different topic out there that people study. And there's something out there for everyone. You just have to be creative with it. Hmm. And I think your point about making it a sort of a requirement in a
0: program is is really the key, isn't it? Because it's not just the the students who are self motivated to do that. You know, kids like like you, Chelsea, who started in middle school doing this work. It, it kind of becomes a responsibility of
7: everyone. Hey, you're a scientist. This is part of your job. Yeah. I would honestly say that requiring an outreach program is just the start of it. I think that universities should also have awards for science communication. They should have certifications. And especially, I would wish that they could have programs and courses in this as well. That it would give it some kind of validity and show students that, hey, what you do matters. You can get a credit for it. We recognize you for it. And like hats off to you. You're doing a great job. We don't always get that pat on the back, which sometimes we could use it. This ties in to,
0: Dan, your suggestion for changing one thing about Sci-com. Um Chelsea, Danielle was talking earlier about having outreach and effective science communication being recognised uh, for professional scientists as well. I need to do a shout out for my own university here, really, the University of Manchester, because we, we do do
1: quite a lot of that. We have sort of a big social responsibility agenda and, and we have even awards as well, Chelsea, you know, you were talking about awards and recognition. We have this big thing every year called Making a Difference Award. Um, and that can be in um, in teaching projects or in research projects, but it's sort
0: of communicating your, your work. Are there any student outreach projects that you particularly admire, Chelsea, that you've seen in action?
7: There are a lot. I think lately, my favourite ones have been with using recycled materials to do art. So something that I know is that For example, I'm also a digital content creator for the Science Festival over here. So we have over 200 presentations just in the month of April. And each of these students and scientists are talking about different things. And one of them, Kelsey Merrick-Wagner, she's a science artist. And she was talking about different ways that you can use recycled materials to create art. And I think I've been in like a recycled art kind of phase, and I've been really enjoying it. I I think that's fantastic.
0: And it's all about cross-fertilization and collaboration.
7: Yeah, we we have to make sure that we're talking to people outside of our disciplines. We can't expect to just be well-rounded just by being closed-minded and only talking to the people in our circle. We have to reach outside of our circle and care about the other people that we are interacting with and directly involved with. Thank you
3: so much for joining
7: us, Chelsea. Thank you for having me.
0: Oh, Dan, we've had so many great ideas in this episode. Oh, there's so many
1: great ones, aren't there? I feel like there are some quicker wins than others in here.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I feel like there are a few common themes as well on there about equity, about outreach, about democratising access to science, whether that's co-created actual data or information, or whether it's actually just sharing your message to Outside your own little silo, your own echo chamber,
1: and I think there was loads of energy for change. You know, with yes. all of our guests, you could you could really hear all the energy they had and their passion they had, and and there was a real sort of force for change amongst them all
0: as well, wasn't there? Yeah, and it's not just about improving Psychom. It's actually about changing what it means to be a scientist. That's a really good point. It isn't sort
1: of sci-com as an afterthought and and Mm. how to make it good as an afterthought. It's truly embedded
0: sort of in the embryonic stages of your science. Yeah, and not just your science, but embedded in who you are, what your identity is. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I feel empowered and inspired. Me too, yeah, and energised. Yeah, I love it. Come on, let's change the world. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, folks, hopefully you're feeling uh, inspired and energised, just like me and Dan, because that is the end of this week's show. So thank you for joining us and get out there and be the change. Oh, yeah, God, absolutely. that's so cheesy. But you know
5: what I mean.
1: <laughs> <laughs> if you'd like to answer today's question yourself and tell us one thing you'd change, if you could, you can tweet us at Wiley in Research or email us at thisstudyshows at com. We would love to hear from you.
0: Bye-bye. Bye. This Study Shows is a Listen Entertainment production for Wiley Research. It's presented by Danielle George and me, Marianne O'Hotter. It's produced by Maddie Hickish. The executive producer from Listen Entertainment is Nick Minter. And the executive producer from Wiley Research is Samantha Green.